In April of 2018, Ford announced that it would be giving its cars the old yeller treatment. The Ford Fiesta has become rabid, and it must be put down. You know we've got to do it. I know, Mama. He was my dog. I'll do it. In the United States, where bigger is better and better is bigger, light trucks and SUVs have steadily outpaced the sales of passenger cars for some time now. Car sales over the past year, excluding trucks and SUVs, were down 9.2% in March. If you take the first three months of 2017 and compare them to the first three months of 2018, car sales this year are down almost 11%. On the other hand, Trucks and SUVs during the same time period have seen sales rise almost 9.8%. In fact, Ford predicts that by the year 2020, 90% of the vehicles they sell will be trucks and SUVs. Even Audi has recently announced that globally, they predict by the year 2025, 50% of the vehicles they sell will be SUVs. And here in the United States, 51% of the vehicles they sell are already SUVs. Over the last decade, trucks and SUVs have gone from sharing a 50-50 split with cars to now dominating in sales, controlling two-thirds of the automotive market here in the U.S. While the rest of the world still loves small cars, in the United States, cheap oil prices and economic recovery are proving to be their downfall. But it's 2018. We have Prius and Tesla. And I mean, Tesla... They have Easter eggs, for Christ's sakes. You can, I don't know, like draw inappropriate things on the tablet dash. That big iPad that they stuck in the middle and called it ergonomic. How have we come to this? Ford is likely the most iconic car maker in the history of car making. Why are they giving up on the car? I honestly don't know, and I probably won't be able to answer that question beyond the fact that People are buying more trucks and SUVs. But I love the automotive industry. Automobiles, their technology and performance have always been fascinating to me. So with the current state of the U.S. auto industry in mind and challenges to conventional methods of powering vehicles proving to be up to snuff, let's go back over 100 years and see how things have changed. <laughs> Do I have to say it, Matt? Dick. <laughs> you always gotta be a dick, son. <laughs> Fasten your seatbelts, folks. We're going for a ride. <laughs> You're listening to Pennies, Nickels, and Dimes. Yeah, room, room, folks. You should have said, "Listeners, start your engines." <laughs> We're revving up for for uh, a wild, a deep thrill. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's appropriate. Um, it's it's always interesting to think 
about how we come from way back when. And although cars were around for a, you know, a number of years way before like the Model T, the Model T is always kind of just considered the beginning of mass production. Oh, so it wasn't the first vehicle. No, not even close. Really? You know? I thought yeah. it was the first vehicle. Um, no, actually. He just created the, the conveyor belt or the uh, inse- assembly line rather. Right, exactly. Yeah. The word automobile, if we take it back to its Greek roots, can be broken down to mean automobile. Auto meaning self and mobile meaning movable. Translation, self-movable. And in that sense, the first automobile machine may have been a steam-powered toy for a Chinese emperor in the late 17th century. And the first automobiles, also powered by steam, may have been developed in the early 1700s. And while much credit is given to Carl Benz for inventing the first car to have an engine powered by combustion that was internal, Carl Benz's Benz Patton motor wagon, which was powered by a 954cc four-stroke single-cylinder engine, making a ground-thumping two-thirds of a horsepower, was designed and completely built in 1885. But Carl Benz wasn't the first person to make this happen. In as early as 1864, an Austrian by the name of Siegfried Marcus had finished building a petrol-powered car, which he called the Marcus car. He was a solid inventor and was well on his way to being an engineer before he was a teenager. His interest in automobiles was more of a hobby than a serious career interest. And when Siegfried died in 1898, he was very well known as the first person to create a gas-powered automobile. So it's curious that if Marcus was well known to be the first person to build a gasoline-powered vehicle, why does Carl's Benz usually get the credit? It's because Siegfried Marcus was of Jewish descent. In 1938, Germany took control of Austria and made Marcus disappear. His name was erased from encyclopedias and his property vanished. The German Ministry for Propaganda declared, and I quote, In the future, encyclopedias are to refer to the two German engineers, Gottlieb Daimler and Carl Benz, as the creators of the modern automobile, not to Siegfried Marcus. However, here in America, a few decades later, Ford answered the question to life, the universe, and everything with the Model 42. Two. Is that- I still don't get it. You might want to explain that for our audience. I joke. Everyone knows it's the Model T. So, what was your uh, what was your first car you ever owned? First car I ever owned was a Honda Civic. 96. Ah, wait, a V6? 96. A 96. I was like, uh, Matt, I hate to break it, <laughs> hate to break it to you, but Civic don't come in V6. <laughs> so yeah, the first car I ever owned was a Honda Civic, 1996 Honda Civic. It was green, which is actually a cursed vehicle color in my car, in my car, in my family. Apparently we're not allowed to own green vehicles in my family. Why is that? 
Apparently all like the worst car accidents have always occurred in a green vehicle. One of my uncles was killed in a car accident um, in a green uh, VW bug. Oh, wow. Yep. So of course my dad's colorblind and goes and buys a car off Craigslist and brings it home and it was green. So goes to show you how much he loves me. He cares about you, right? First thing he was thinking is, I got to get this boy a, a green, <laughs> a green Civic. Five kids are expensive, man. Got to lighten the load. I get it. I get it. Okay. Right. We all live with constraints. <laughs> how many doors did it have? Was it a two door or was it a four door? I think it was probably a two door, whatever the original was. Two door Civic. Oh, you mean it was a two door Civic? Yeah. 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 So it was like a coupe. Yeah, it was. Oh, okay. They were talking about the, the Beetle. Okay. Do you know the um, the code for that? Do you know if it's like an EJ or an EK or EP or... I can't remember at this point. Do you know what all that stuff means though? I know like L was luxury or... Oh, no, 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 no. Like I'm talking like the um, the chassis designations. Nope. Sure don't. So you're thinking like the style. So whether it was like a, a Honda Civic LX or a Honda Civic EX or a Honda right. Civic SI, all that. Stuff. Right, right. Yeah. No. So what I'm talking is like even deeper than that. Oh, wow. It's the internal code that they use to designate your car. So hmm. most all, all automotive manufacturers have some type of chassis code that they consider their car like a body style or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, my first car was a Chevy Cavalier and those were called J bodies. And so that was the code. So J-Body was the um, Chevrolet Cavalier. And um, at that time, because mine was a 2001, 2002, something like that, they also had the Pontiac Sunfire, which was also considered a J-Body. Hmm. But Interesting. For Civics that were made between the years of, um, I believe, 1995 and 2000, the two-door models were considered um, EJs. So if you ever hear anybody say that they have an EJ Civic, that means that they have a, a two-door Civic that was made in that time frame. That time frame. Um, and then they also have the EK and the EM, and those also designate how many doors, also whether it's hatchbacks, on and so forth, because then you can start talking about stuff like a, an EJ8, which designates, yeah. So you can get really, <laughs> really deep into these um these models that people have, and you have the same thing with engines. You know, Honda has the Ds and the Bs, so like a D15 or like a B18, that kind of, yeah. And I'm those just all glazing over. Yeah. You guys can't see this. I'm just glazing over over here, nodding my head. Oh, and I was this is like, this and, is fascinating. Well, well, it's crazy for me because I'm kind of going off of memory. So a lot of what I'm saying right now might actually be wrong. And I'm sure that there'll be a lot of fanboys that'll hear this. Actually, no, dude, it was, it was EJ with MP, you know, whatever. Hey. All I know is that my Honda Civic was basic as shit. It was like a very simple vehicle. I ran that thing, really did a bad job taking care of it. Didn't really get the oil changed as often as I would. Yeah. And it never broke down on me, never had any issues with it. And as soon as my dad posted it on Craigslist to get rid of it, it was like gone in an hour. So. But you know, I, I grew up kind of like really in that whole phase of like oh, yeah. automotive stuff. And I, Were you I really, a street racer, Xavier? I was a street racer, yeah. Um, I mean, we used to... You know that's illegal, right? Oh, yeah. I know. I've had my run-ins. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, it was just a thrill. I remember the first time because there was a, a road we used to go cruising on all the time growing up. And I remember the first time I ever went out there with a really good friend of mine. And I just remember seeing, I think it was like a, a Corvette and a Mustang racing. And just like the thrill and excitement that I got from just seeing that and, you know, just being around it was just awesome to me. 
and then um i got to learn how to drive stick on a corvette thanks to my dad nice that's what he's he had and then He had a little bit of a run in the, with the law. Eddie, in his Corvette. In his Corvette. <laughs> I won't go into details because I don't want him to get mad at me for spilling all these <laughs> dirty all details. His, his, his business out in the street. He's going to hang air out all his dirty laundry, but yeah. he decided there soon after it was time to sell the car, which that didn't last very long because two years later he bought another one. So Another Corvette. Yeah. Which I like the newer one better anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, even, um, so even with like, if, if you take Corvettes thinking about what I was just saying too, like, so the engines, have you, you have you heard of like LS engines, like LS ones, LS twos, LS. No. So Corvettes, at least their newer ones now they have like LS engines and that's just a series of engine that GM produces and they're in the entire lineup. So they're in everything from Corvettes, Camaros to their trucks and SUVs and everything. And those engines are a foundation. So if you have a LS series engine, um, there were LTs and so on and so forth um, that were put into um, a number of all their vehicles. They're in the Cadillacs. They're in, you know, um, the performance edition Cadillacs, which is designated by the V now. They're in those cars as well. But I guess that gets to the point of kind of what we're talking about today in the sense of thinking about the automotive industry. It's come to the point now to where there's so much sharing and consolidation of platforms down in the automotive industry to where most cars and trucks and SUVs that you see on the road are sharing their parts. Oh, yeah. That's always fascinated me. Like GM has so many different brands. Different brands, but they're all the same vehicle. They're all the same vehicle. Exactly. It's so bizarre. Let's talk for a minute about Ransom Oles. Much like the situation with Benz and Marcus, minus the racist, noxy BS, Ford is usually credited with creating the first mass-produced automobile using an assembly line with the Model T. But in fact, it was Oles who first used the concept in 1901 when he patented the idea with the curved-dash Oldsmobile. The curved dash was sold over the course of six years, and in total, Oldsmobile built over 19,000 vehicles. Just a year after production ended on the Olds, General Motors acquired Olds Automobiles, or Oldsmobile as we know them today, and GM held onto the company for 96 years. Oldsmobile was ultimately shut down in 2004, and the last vehicle they produced was a four-door Alero. Um, you know, very quality vehicle. Uh, <laughs> now let's make a distinction. The curved dash was produced on an assembly line and should rightfully have the title as the first automobile to do so. But it was in 1913 when Ford took the assembly line concept and made it move. The moving assembly line is what set Ford apart from everything that had been done before. The first Model T's were introduced in 1908, and just days after its release, there were already 15,000 orders for the vehicle. To put that in perspective, it took Tesla around 12 months to cross that same milestone with the Model S, which was released in 2012. There's no question about it, the Model T was a hit. It was marketed as the average everyday person's car, essentially a car for the middle class, and it was considered reliable, and easy to maintain. 
There's one car that takes you anywhere you want to go. The Model T. Strong, sturdy, with a will of its own. Here's how they put them together at the Highland Park plant. A car comes off the end of the line every 10 seconds. In 1909, at a price of just over $800, that's about $22,000 today, Ford sold over 10,000 Model Ts. In 1913, Ford was able to cut the price down to $500. By 1923, Ford was selling over a million and a half Model Ts a year, and prices would eventually get to under $300 brand new. In today's money, that's cheaper than what you would pay for a 10-year-old used Nissan Sentra. With over 14 million models sold between 1908 and 1927, the Model T will go down in history as one of the greatest cars ever. And even in 2018, the Ford Model T is still one of the top 10 best-selling cars of all time. But the Ford Model T was only the beginning of America's obsession with the automobile. And the time during after World War II in the early 20th century, that time would prove to be instrumental in ushering in the modern era of automobiles as we know and understand them today. The whole automotive industry has been around a lot longer than the Model T, thinking mm-hmm. 1906, right? So almost 112 years um, right, right. ago, but the industry of thinking about cars and powering something to move along roads or whatever um, has been around a lot longer than the Model T. But the Model T is what set the whole industry standard of mass producing cars for the people. Um, at we least here in the United States. kind of shifted us into what we're doing now. Right. Right. Um, arguably in Germany, it was the Volkswagen Beetle, which set that out for the car of the people. But it's crazy to think how far we've come to now where we have probably close to like 300 different car brands in the United States. If you think of something like a Honda Civic and then a Honda Accord and then a Honda Prelude and Honda whatever else or another, there's like, probably close to like 300 different um, models in the United States. I mean, I'm not sure I could be completely making that up, but um, take for instance, like a company such as, um, I don't know, let's just go with Volkswagen since I drive a Volkswagen, right? So like my car, that platform in 2015, they call it the MQB platform. Mm -hmm. That platform underpins my car, which is a Volkswagen Golf GTI, it underpins the whole Golf lineup. It also underpins the entire Audi A3 um, lineup, um, the Audi TT, also the Audi Tiguan, or sorry, the Volkswagen Tiguan, which is the SUV, the small SUV, all share that same platform. What do you mean platform? So the- um, The chassis? The chassis, um, the suspension, the engines, all of that stuff is reused. The same guts, just reconfigured the same a little guts, bit. guts, just reconfigured. So some of the cars might have different um, tuning or, mm-hmm. you know, obviously wheels, tires. Um, they can even, in some cases, elongate the platform to fit a, be- a bigger vehicle, mm-hmm. raise it, lower it for like an SUV if they want to make it higher. But it's all the same essential guts that they use to make 
multiple, multiple vehicles. So something like a Toyota Camry is also the same as a Lexus ES, right? So they take that same- Those are the same guts? Those are the same guts. A Lexus ES is essentially a Toyota Camry. Jesus. <laughs> you know? Um, and then you have um, um, even their SUV, or, or I mean, even GM and Ford, if you think about those, if you think about something like um, a Chevy Silverado, or a um, a Chevy, what's their big SUV, the Tahoe and the Suburban, Yeah, right? You know, Suburban. those are all on the right. truck platform. They're the same exact vehicle. And then you get into GMC with the Sierra and the Yukon, and those are all the same thing, and they share all the same engines. One of the reasons we consider automobiles to be so practical is because our ability to hop into one and go anywhere throughout the country at our own convenience. There's a very important relationship that cars have with the American highway system. If it weren't for roads, the ease of getting around wouldn't be possible. Whether you're driving across town to go to the grocery store, across state to see maybe your mistress, or from San Francisco to New York, Roads are where the majority of cars spend most of their time. Using your GPS, if you wanted to take a trip from San Francisco to New York, that would be the distance of about 2,900 miles. It would take you approximately 43 hours, assuming you didn't stop for gas or to relieve yourself of all the coffee and Coca-Cola you would drink to keep yourself awake. You would spend most of your time on Interstate 80, and you would travel through Wyoming, Iowa, and Ohio until you eventually arrived in New York City. But what if you took that same trip in 1903? What would that journey look like? All 63 days of it. Yes, 63 days. That's how long it took Dr. Horatio Jackson to make the trip from San Francisco to New York in the spring of 1903 becoming the first person to travel the entire length of the country in a car. There were only about 150 miles of paved roads at that time in the entire country, and this route was made up of mostly dirt roads and cow paths. He was joined by a young mechanic by the name of Sewell Crocker and a goggle-wearing bulldog named Bud. Jackson powered across the country in a Winton car that had 20 horsepower. And there was no Google Maps in 1903. Hell, there were no paper road maps in 1903. And it's amazing to think how much things have changed since. At the time of Horatio's trip, cars were still thought of as being a fad. But it was only 10 years after Horatio's trip that the American highway system started to flourish. The Lincoln Highway was one of the earlier examples of this new system. And it ran from San Francisco to New York, just like Horatio. And in another 30 years, the Lincoln Highway would form a large amount of Interstate 80, the same highway that GPS would suggest you take in 2018. So even though things change, in a lot of ways, they stay the same. In the years between 1903 and 1924, paved roads grew from 150 miles to over 30,000 miles. And this expansion of paved roadways helped increase the desire to own a car. 
and in turn, the growth of the automotive industry. So Toyota, they um, they have different divi- their different divisions are of course Lexus. Um, they also had Scion, which they got rid of recently. So Scions no longer exist. Um, really? Mm-hmm. Since when? What? Um, yeah. They just so, stopped. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what I mean. I oh mean, my God, it, it's the same thing like Pontiac, right? You remember Pontiac? Right? They're not so, around anymore. No, they're not. Around anymore. What other companies aren't around anymore? <laughs> you, you just see know. these cars linger on the road for <laughs> yeah. too freaking long, and you well, assume yeah. they're still like in no, operation because you, because you see them on the road to exist. All right. No, Toyota got rid of uh, Scion in um, 2016. They've been gone for two years. Yeah, so they've Holy been gone moly. for a while. But um, so so one of the, the the latter vehicles that was still really popular in selling was the Scion FRS. Okay, which was um, the small little sports car. I don't know if you've seen it, but that's even a even greater example of how the automotive industry is very incestuous. I love using that word. I don't even know if that's the right word. No, but I it think just you're right. Yeah, all, everyone's just, you know, yeah, exactly. Everybody's just, there's no competition. There, they're all right. just, <laughs> strip. no, I'm um, going to stop right there. <laughs> right. Um, but they, um, that car is a twin with a car made by Subaru, mm-hmm. which is called the Subaru BRZ. They were made and developed together. They share essentially all the same parts. The Subaru, I think, has like a little bit more luxury touches on the interior and probably some other little performance things that maybe the um, the Scion didn't have. And it probably was a little bit more expensive for that reason. But it's essentially the same car. And I'm sure you've seen this car. On the Is it the square one? Is it the little tiny one? Can you see that? Oh, yeah, I know exactly you know what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah, so that's a... Um, that's a Scion FRS and the Subaru BRZ. They're the same exact car, but they're sold by two different automotive manufacturers who came together to build a small little fun sports car. Hmm. So then Toyota gets rid of Scion, and now this vehicle is one of the vehicles that survived Scion dying, and now it's sold as a Toyota, and it's called the Toyota GT maybe, or a Toyota GT86, which was kind of the original fun car from Toyota. I think it's called the GT Toyota. Yes. I saw that and I was like, that is a sick car. Oh, did you take a picture? I just saw that. Yeah. Yeah. I just took one the other day. That was like last week, this past weekend. Yeah. So this This is is a sick freaking car. This is called a Toyota 86. It used to be a Scion FRS and there's also a Subaru version of it called the Subaru BRZ and they're the same exact. So that car actually has a Subaru engine in it. It doesn't have a Toyota engine in it, but yeah, it has a flat four engine, which Subaru is known for their flat four. So that's what's in um, STIs and um, Impreza's and so on and so forth, like the WRX, like yeah. all those vehicles have flat fours in it. You guys can see the picture of the Toyota on our Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, plop, Plug. We'll, plop, we'll plop it up <laughs> on Hashtag there. Hashtag PND Talks. Right, if you're not right. following, you better start following. <laughs> it, it's just... That's hilarious. Everywhere, yeah. everywhere. And, and most, your average consumer doesn't It's like the banks, that, whenever they change all the, the logos on the banks when they get right, acquired. Right, like <laughs> Ally Bank that used to be GMAC. Or GMAC, which was a General Motors insurance company. Now it's Ally Bank. That's insane. 
As roads expanded, so did automotive dealerships. So prior to dealerships, most cars were sold directly to consumers from the automakers themselves. And that model is actually still used today by Tesla. The first dealership started popping up around the late 1800s, and today there are over 16,000 new car dealerships in the country. And it's even crazy because you can actually buy a car in a vending machine these days. If you don't believe me, go look it up. As the car became more and more popular, America saw the rise of the big three. General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler. Ford having been so successful with the Model T introduced the Model A in 1927. But the idea of what cars meant to people was beginning to change. People no longer simply wanted to own a car, but they wanted their car to make a statement. They wanted more luxury and vehicles that had unique styling. In the early 1900s, GM went on a rampage and seemingly gobbled up any automaker they could find. Buick, Oldsmobile, and a company named Oakland, which nowadays most people wouldn't know as Pontiac, were all acquired by GM in the same year. And later they would go on to grab Chevrolet and foreign companies like Vauxhall Motors and Holden and Opel. And GM started creating tiers of their vehicle so that the cars that people purchase could reflect their wealth and social status. That's a very common thing today. You buy a Honda Civic or you can buy a Honda Accord and people that buy Civics don't necessarily make as much as people that buy Accords or, you know, something along those lines. Before during this time was sticking with their principles of the car for the people and continued to sell one car in one color for one price. But they weren't just building cars, they were building a working class. Ford paid its workers $5 a day, and this meant that a person working at a Ford factory could afford to buy the product they made with just four months worth of pay. By the 1930s, Ford had a worldwide presence with Ford France, Britain, Denmark, and Germany. The assembly line model was the standard throughout the world, and any company that was not using that method and using older methods was gonna go out of business. And they did. And this was due to their inability to keep up. During the Great Depression and after World War II, the big three found themselves in a very powerful position. Many automakers were unable to survive the harsh times and cars were growing as size and with suburban living becoming more common in the 50s and 60s, cars started to become a necessity. And the highway system was continuing to grow with the passage of the 1956 Highway Act. But Ford, GM, and Chrysler would soon start to see competition. And that competition was coming from overseas. So, yeah, so we talked about Toyota, right? And then, so, you know, it's like Toyota has Lexus and, you know, they had Scion and so on and so forth. Toyota owns Daihatsu, which is an old company that unless you're probably really car nerdy, you probably won't know who they are, right? Yeah. Um, uh, Lexus, Toyota, of course. And uh, this company, I'm probably going to butcher this, Hainu. I've n never heard of them. Um, they're me. an Asian company, so I don't know what they are. Um, I would say Volkswagen is probably, in terms of their holdings, they own the most recognizable luxury, high-performance brands out of any other company. 
So Volkswagen AG owns Volkswagen, of course, um, Audi, Bentley, Bugatti, Lamborghini, Porsche, and then if you want to start going outside of the country, Skoda, Scania, like all these other companies. And they also own Ducati motorcycles. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. So, and when I say own, another, another thing you kind of got to be a little careful with is own means they have the highest amount of shares in that country or in that, in that company. In, in that company. So they have the influence. So now to- I believe Audi, they hold like 99% of the shares in Audi. So they essentially do completely own Audi. Um, well, of course, cause they're publicly traded companies. Right. But then other, other of those brands, they may own a high enough percentage to be able to say that they, um, own that company. That's weird. When you, when you, when you think about that, the fact that um, Lamborghini is coming out with an SUV. What? Really? Because in the United States, we're bigger is better and better is bigger. <laughs> Love that <laughs> intro. trucks and SUVs <laughs> <laughs> are starting to outpace. Yeah, everybody wants an SUV now. And so Lamborghini's coming out with an SUV. That SUV is the same as the Audi Q7 which is the Audi SUV, if you've ever seen Audi SUV, and also the Porsche Cayenne, which is a Porsche SUV. Mm -hmm. I know that one, yeah. That's exactly what the Lamborghini SUV. But it's just going to be marked up by like 30%. They're going to have, I'm sure, different tuning. They're going to have different um, engine tuning, all that stuff. To make it a a Lamborghini, to make it unique, the styling is going to be different, all of that. But, and uh, also the- uh, Hold on, so- it's the Porsche Cayenne, and what is the other one? The Audi Q7. Okay. Yeah, which is Audi's largest SUV. Got it. Um, there, there also used to be a Volkswagen Touareg, which mm-hmm. was a big SUV as well. Mm-hmm. That, I think I that remember that. That platform was also based on. So it's like, they're all just, but they're the same car company, so it's easy for Lamborghini to just come out with the SUV. I mean, I'm sure the R&D, meaning research and development, is still pretty high for that, but nowhere near as high as if you had to develop an SUV from scratch because they can pull from the parts. Bin, sure. Right? Makes more sense. Yeah. And then, so if you look at companies like General Motors, which is Buick, Cadillac, Chevrolet, GMC, um, Holden, which um, is an Australia brand, and then, you know, so on and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. That's what GMC, that's what General Motors owns, right? And then, so you have all of those brands, like Buick and Cadillac and Chevy, and they're all sharing the same engines and platforms. Um, Did Oldsmobile get the old yellow treatment? I don't know. I, I feel like maybe I actually I saw a commercial of an Oldsmobile not long, not too long ago. Yes, Oldsmobile has been dead since 2004. Oh shit! Never mind. Didn't see a commercial for it. Maybe I'm thinking about Buick. Buick. Yeah, 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 right. But it's the same kind of thing. It's like you just connect those things together, right? Um, and another situation. So Ford used to own Jaguar and Land Rover, and got rid of them, and so now they're their own company. So Jaguar and Land Rover are the same company, um, and they also have two SUVs now that are. The same. So did all these acquisitions um, occur in pretty recent time? Were they all independent, like say in the 
eighties and then they all came oh, yeah. together. And then they all just started getting picked up and dropped off. And that's my point. This is still happening. That's why it's, right. it's, it's so hard to keep up with like Ferrari, for instance. Um, I, I think the worst company is anything that has to deal with Daimler, Benz or Fiat. Those are the worst ones because they are changing every other year. Um, so uh, Dodge, Jeep, Chrysler, Mercedes-Benz, those vehicles, I never know who owns who and who's owning what. Um, Volkswagen can get a little bad because it's like... They've just got such a giant it's swath. Just such a, right, that it, it can get a little out of hand pretty but quickly. But you wouldn't think, though, that Mercedes-Benz and Jeep were so liquid because they're pretty popular brands, at least in the States. You know, everyone's got a, a Jeep Wrangler. Sophia owns um, Abarth, which is an Italian company. Most Americans won't know what that is. Some Americans will know what Alfa Romeo is. Um, they've recently come back yep. to America with like the Julia and right. some other vehicles. It's like the affordable sport supercar. Right, right. right. Um, Chrysler, Dodge, Fiat, of course, Jeep, Lancia, um, which is also an Italian brand that a lot of Americans probably won't know about. Uh, Maserati and Ram, which is now its own kind of division of things as well. So weird. Um, but they also used to have Ferrari. And then just recently, maybe a year or two years ago, they dropped Ferrari. So now Ferrari is its own brand again. So Ferrari now owns Ferrari. But Maseratis are essentially affordable Ferraris because they use a lot of the same chassis and engines. Um, but Maserati is owned by Fiat. And in fact, the Maserati Ghibli, if you're inside the interior of one and you look at like the window ups, downs, and the door mm-hmm. locks, they are the same ones that you'll find in some Chryslers and Dodges. <laughs> really? So the switch gear is actually the same Jeez. because they're all owned by Fiat. Oh my so gosh. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's just this huge, again, you this know, is like Frankenstein of, of stuff, but it makes sense in terms of the sheer amount of vehicles that they're producing, and that and in capitalism in general, and just, in capitalism yeah. because people reduce cost choice. Exactly, people want choice. They want to feel as though they're different. By the mid-1900s, the modern era of cars had arrived, and the American automotive industry was the world standard. But the world was catching up fast. The big three covered about 90% of the market in the mid-1960s. But it didn't take long for imports to catch fire, and the new small vehicles from Volkswagen and Toyota were proving to be a success. By 1970, the rate of imports coming into this country was increasing by over 80% a year. And the car that was winning people over the most was the true people's car, the Volkswagen Beetle. Ford, Chrysler, and GM tried to answer these vehicles with compacts of their own, cars such as the Vega and the Hornet and the Pinto. On just about everything, except the weather. In a Ford Pinto, you can make your own weather. Pinto's price is so low, you can afford a sunroof, air conditioning, a rear window defroster to make the weather inside your Pinto as dependable as your Pinto. 
the economical little pinto based price but sadly these cards had quality issues and in the case of the latter caught fire in the literal sense Safety and pollution was not exactly at the forefront of regulators' minds during this early part of the automotive industry, but that all changed in the 60s. The Clean Air Act of 1963 sought to control air pollution, and in 1965, the act was amended to begin setting standards and requirements for the automotive industry. These new standards would take effect eventually in 1968. This act led to the implementation of catalytic converters and eventually the switch from leaded gasoline to unleaded gasoline. The fuel efficiency of vehicles was now a concern. And when oil prices went from $3 a barrel to $12 a barrel in 1975, corporate average fuel economy standards, simply known as CAFE, were introduced the same year for the 1978 model year. By 1985, the standard MPG had to be 27.5. And in this sense, imports had a leg up and their quality, efficiency, and technology were all top notch. Now let me take a step back and do something I likely should have done from the beginning, and that's to introduce trucks and SUVs. I'll put it this way. In the 1920s, Ford had a Model T pickup. So trucks have been around for a long time, but it wasn't until the 1950s that they started to become popular, and it wasn't until the 1980s that SUVs started grabbing the hearts of consumers. Due to their size and the big engines needed to power them, trucks on average consume more fuel than cars, and in this sense, they tend to pollute more. CAFE has different standards for trucks and SUVs because of this reason. But as we all know, Americans love them. These big vehicles are what farmers and soccer moms alike crave. And nowadays we have crossover vehicles which are more popular than they have ever been. Consumers can have the best of both worlds. Crossover SUVs are SUV-esque vehicles built on car platforms or a unibody and they allow for more car-like handling and efficiency with the height and presence of an SUV. And because most people never take their SUVs off-road, crossovers allow consumers to lose some of the ruggedness of a true body-on-frame vehicle and gain more of the supple experience you would get in the car. As I mentioned earlier, these vehicles are becoming so popular that automotive companies such as Ford are starting to cater to that market. Sales of crossovers, trucks, and SUVs usually struggle when gas prices are high, but with new technology, that might not be as big of a problem as it once was. Just like in cars, trucks are also becoming more fuel efficient as well. This opens up the door for Americans to be able to have their F-150s without the worries of whether they can afford to move the needle past E. car industry is a very funky industry. It is. It, it's it's very interesting. But I, I think that also gets to the point now to where in this country, we really do love SUVs and trucks. That's what everybody wants to buy. And it's because of their heft, their... Not that people take them off road. For like, but they for, just, you know, post-apocalyptic sort of scenarios, right. you want to be prepared. <laughs> you I get it. Be prepared. I get it. You know, you can shove your nine kids in the back and throw all the soccer balls back there. Gotcha. and 
you yeah. know, all their sugar snacks and Capri Suns. Yeah, all their Capri Suns and, you know, so on and so forth. So it's just people love SUVs and then, you know, trucks because trucks they're allow utilitarian us to be right, good old boys. And we can work the farm and dig the hole and, you know, transport the hay and, you mm-hmm. know, it's all just, the uh, country. Yeah, I Redneck mean, the rule from my high yeah, school I mean, all parked in the back corner with their pickup trucks. With their trucks, lift it with yeah. the, yeah, yeah, yeah. With their snorkels uh, on their... What's oh. up, Patrick? Um, <laughs> <and> then, <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, but I mean, it, it, you know, it it is, but it's at the same time, it's just, it's fascinating how all of that stuff works and that your average consumer doesn't necessarily pick up on that kind of stuff or think about things in that way that, you know... Um, when I'm buying a Porsche, I'm essentially buying an Audi. Now, granted, the, and the, you're essentially buying right. a Volkswagen, <laughs> right? Now, now, granted, they clearly have their own design teams sure, and their sure. own engineers and all that kind of stuff. So the product's not going to be the same. It, it's the same with um, right now. So, uh, do you know the Toyota Supra? Yep. So Toyota Supra is highly iconic when it in in the time that it came out. Um, again, going back, and I just hate to say it, but during that Fast and Furious era, oh yeah, all uh, day, right? You know, it, um, we used to jokingly call it the rich man Civic because of the fact that it was still a a, a Japanese car, but it was more expensive. But for folks that could afford it, that's what everyone was buying. <laughs> So yeah. it's like if you well, want, wasn't it like you could put ten thousand dollars in it and make it just as fast as a supercar? Or oh, some absolutely. Shit? They they were um, you know some people also called them um, drag queens, meaning on the drag strip. Sure, sure. You could, you know, when someone says something's queening, it's like you know I don't know if you know what that mm-hmm. term means. You know, it's mm-hmm. like the whole idea of like that's what it that's like the one trick it has. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Um, yeah, you could put, because they were, the whole era of those cars was, um, you saw the similarities, in, and that's another thing. All these car companies are touting themselves to be different, but they all do the same thing almost exactly right. in terms of the types of engines they use. Right. Everyone's gone away from V6s to now turbocharged four cylinders. Right. You know, everyone's using the same type of technology. Um, but back in that time, with the Japanese cars in particular, they weren't using V6s. They were using twin turbocharged, or sorry, they weren't using V8s. They were using twin turbocharged six cylinders. Um, so the Toyota Supra, it was an inline six cylinder and you could get a twin turbo model. So inline six just means that the cylinders are lined up in mm-hmm. a straight, straight row. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Nissan with the 300ZX, um, they were using the twin turbo V6 in their top model. Mitsubishi had the 3000 GT, which there was a VR4 version of that that had a twin turbo V6. Mazda had the RX-7. It was kind of the the wanky one, wanky. <laughs> you guys get it, wankle. Anyway, <laughs> I don't get it, but I'm gonna assume all those car aficionados out there get it. And but. they're probably thinking this dude's lame as hell. <laughs> they get it, and that makes me look bad. That's the problem. Um, but it had a rotary engine, and that's just a different type of engine setup where it had a rotor in the, in, in the mm-hmm. center instead of your traditional mm-hmm. cylinders, um, so on and so forth. But I won't get too deep in the technical stuff because I would probably not do it justice. But it also had twin turbos. 
And that's what all the Japanese manufacturers are doing. And not only that, but 300ZX, what do you think that 300 represents? Horsepower. It represents the size of the engine. It's a three liter, 3.0 or 3000 cc's. Right. Mitsubishi 3000 GT. Right. The uh, 5 Series, 550 is a, isn't it like a 5.5 So BMW engine? has gone totally. to shit. BMW, Mercedes, both of them, you can no longer use. Um, the- even really Lexus may still be pretty spot on, but definitely BMW and um, Mercedes, no. Those numbers mean nothing anymore. I mean, they mean something, but they don't necessarily tell you a clear story. I see. Um, so Mercedes, for instance, it used used to be um, if you had like a, a um, an E430 or an E430, you know, four that would be a four point three liter, right? You know, right. so you could look right. at it. Um, BMW never really so much like a three thirty. You could say a three liter inline six, but um, BMW is also very big on inline sixes. Hmm. Nowadays, it's not that clear. So the thirty fives, like the three thirty five, that's a three liter uh, inline six turbo. The th- the three forty or the four forty, those are still three liter inline six turbo. So they're not, the the numbers more so designate the level of um, of uh, luxury performance and so on and so forth. So it's mm-hmm. kind of more like the series, more so than um, what the engines represent. But um, yeah, so back in that time, it, all the Japanese manufacturers were using um, three liter V6s, inline six, uh, twin turbo engines and the Supra just was real. It was one of the better looking ones. And yeah, you could, it, you could put, you know, a few thousand dollars into a Toyota Supra and it could make, you know, easily 600, 700, 800 horsepower. And some of the crazier ones were making well over a thousand horsepower. Um, and, 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 the, and the thing that made it so beautiful is when you start tuning cars like that, um, you have to usually um, upgrade the internals. So your pistons, your rods and your rings and your valves and all those types of things, you have to start upgrading those things because the factory parts can't handle the stress of the big turbo that you put on there. So some people Mm, would take the twin turbos and transform it to just one big single turbo. Mm -hmm. And when it's spooling up and it's putting, forcing all the air in there, um, into your cylinder, the stock parts can't handle the new stresses that they're receiving from all the extra power that they're they're being asked to produce. So the so you have to in, upgrade your internals. But what made the Supra such an amazing car is that it could produce um, from the factory they were making about three hundred horsepower. It could double that horsepower on the stock what we would call the bottom end. So your mm-hmm. pistons and your rods. Right. It could produce double that horsepower. St- just from the stock, all you had to essentially do was bolt on a new turbo or bolt on uh, intercooler or intake or exhaust or whatever. Stuff you literally just bolt on, and that's why they call them bolt-on parts. Mm-hmm. So um, anything that you don't have to open the actual engine up to do, right? Um, it's called bolt-ons. And so you could just literally bolt stuff onto this into a, a 2JZ GTE, which is the engine code for mm-hmm. a Supra. Um, that particular you know, kind of mid nineties model that was really popular and yeah, it would handle the power with no problem. And you're now, yeah, now you're making 600 horsepower out of this, you know, $40,000 car 
that's making just as much power, more power than, you know, Ferraris and Lamborghinis, which are costing triple, four times as mm-hmm. much as that. That's insane. Um, granted, you know, you're still not getting the quality and so, you know, yeah, so on right. and so forth, or the cachet, that but I mean. fabric above you still right, falling you know, off the roof. But and that's <laughs> the, right, that's the, the thing that people loved about those cars was the ability. And it was the same with like the 300 ZXs and the, mm-hmm. um, although those had um, heating issues because they were just very, packed in there but um i brought that up about 15 20 minutes ago to say that toyota is coming out with a new supra after they discontinued them in like 98 or maybe somewhere around there so it's been decades since toyota has had a true sports car i mean nissan's had the 370z right you know that's a sports car of course the mustang's still around but it's been a really long time since toyota has had a true middleweight sports car um to compete with something like a 370z or even the audi tt r rs or whatever you want to call them so now toyota is coming out with a new supra and they are teaming up with bmw who is coming out with the new z4 so the oh, new cool. Toyota Supra and the new BMW Z4 are being developed together. Hmm. And they're going to be just like Same. I was saying with the BRZ from Subaru and the FRS from Toyota Scion. They're going to be the same vehicle. Although BMW, of course, is not having any of that. <laughs> right. And there's no way that they're going to have a BMW that looks like a Toyota. Oh, yeah. Like the Subaru. and the, I mean, they look exactly the same, essentially. Um, so they're, they're, but they're developing chassis, engines, all the very sheer basic parts. They're developing those together, and then from there, um, they're going they're separate go, ways. They're separate ways to to develop everything. But well, that's cool. Underpinnings are going to be essentially the same. A lot of people are excited because the fact that the original Super had an inline six engine, which is the the same. Uh, 600 BMW still uses to this day. Toyota got rid of their inline sixes a few years ago, so they all all they use now are V6s. So people are really happy and hoping that the new Supra will have an inline six because it's developed along with um, with BMW. So, hmm. interesting. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, Ford sold over 14 million Model Ts in its production run in the early 1900s. But that number has nothing on what Toyota has been able to do. In August of 2013, a person who bought one of the thousands of Toyota Corollas sold that month accounted for number 40. Number 40 million. The Corolla was first produced in 1966 and introduced to the American market in 1968. In 2013, 11 generations after the first Corolla rolled off the line, Toyota is producing over 1.1 million Corollas a year. The model was sold in 150 countries, and of all the Toyotas sold since the company was first founded in 1937, one out of five of those vehicles has been a Corolla. Today, Corollas sold in North America account for over one-third of the Corollas sold elsewhere in the world. Our love for imports is stronger than ever. For me personally, my love for imports started probably in the 90s. And while tuning cars to be faster and more aesthetically appealing has been around way before then, 
I think it would be safe to say that for a lot of people born within the last three to four decades, the mid-90s to late 2000s tuner craze shaped our love for four cylinders, turbochargers, and those hideous body kits and rear wings. Civics and Supers are practically the reason why Vin Diesel is still relevant today. Most automotive manufacturers develop and produce their products to a certain specification to keep the industry requirements and standards for the country in which they're sold in. Think cafe. They basically build their cars to meet those standards. But regulations often mean that vehicles aren't designed to be as fast or fun or loud as they could be. And those are exactly the things that car enthusiasts who crave performance like. Drifting, hot riding, low riding, stancing, and sleepers are all styles and scenes that were born from the desire to customize the vehicles auto manufacturers provide us. That's why there's no shortage of aftermarket companies ready to sell enthusiasts a new exhaust or downpipe, you know, that intake and carbon fiber hood or that new LED taillight kit you've been craving. The U.S. automotive aftermarket is roughly a $300 billion industry and it continues to grow. With newer technologies and better R&D from manufacturers, tuning your personal vehicle has never been easier. Most technology and design that impacts the way a vehicle handles and performs has been around since the early 1900s. I mean, disc brakes, overhead cams, four-wheel drive, electric starters, hybrid engines, these were all known and used technologies during that time. Technologies as complicated as variable valve timing were even around during the 1800s. What has changed most between now and then is our use of integrated circuits, transistors, diodes, and processors to create these electrical networks that monitor and control all of the vehicle's functions. So now these networks allow the transmission to talk to the engine and the engine to talk to the brakes and the brakes to talk to the differential to make sure that you don't slide off the road when it's raining or to move 80% of the torque to the left rear wheel because that's the wheel that has the most traction available to pull you hard out of a turn. Electronics have allowed us to take older technologies and make them quicker to respond and more integrated than ever. Some enthusiasts scoff at the overusing of newer technologies because in some cases it makes a vehicle feel detached and numb. And this is not a good thing when you're trying to enjoy a curvy back road on a Sunday afternoon. But these technologies are amazing if you want to get more from less. So as we move into the future and think about the automotive industry and where it's going to take us, Technology is going to be a part of that. Companies like Tesla, Nissan with their Leaf, and Toyota with the Prius are proving that hybrid and electric technologies are not just a fad. I still think Ford is making the wrong decision to get rid of its car lineup here in the US. If history has taught us anything, it's that when gas prices rise, consumers run as fast as they can away from trucks and SUVs. Will oil prices stay this low forever? I doubt it. But maybe the one thing that Ford is placing its bets on is that technology will back their decision. Tesla already has a fully electric crossover with the Model X. So it may be that the decision to buy a truck and SUV won't be connected to the price of oil in the near future. I just hope that whatever the future holds, it includes cars that are fun to drive. There are still people out there who drive for pleasure and not just out of necessity. Some days when I'm bored, I hop into my car and find an empty back road and just drive. If I were in a truck, I I'm pretty certain I wouldn't have as much fun. Hey, maybe that's why Ford's hanging onto the Mustang. 
But whatever the future holds, technology will be a part of it. And I hope it takes us in the direction that doesn't include only driverless vehicles as an option. I am a driver and I'm here to stay. Thank you for listening. Remember to click, like, and subscribe at PND Talks on Instagram. Take care.